Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of NIDS Knowledge, this time being the Real Space Strategy Edition. This podcast is produced by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we'll inform you about space strategy and its importance to our national defense. I'm your host, Christopher Stone. My guest for this episode will be Dr. Brent Zarnick. He is a professor at the Space Force's Intermediate Defense Education Program at Johns Hopkins University. He is also the author of several books on space power theory and about our topic of today's show, which is General Thomas S. Power, former commander of Strategic Air Command in the early 1960s, as warfighting icon for the United States Space Force and its deterrence posture. So, Brent, welcome to Real Space Strategy. Hey, thanks for having me. You have argued in your writings a couple of books and some papers and even articles that you believe that General Thomas Power is the warfighting icon or should be the warfighting icon for the U.S. Space Force. To set the stage for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with him because they're used to hearing names like Schriever and Mormon and others, could you kind of just set the stage briefly of who this guy is, and and then we'll move into more details about about the warfighting icon bit. Sure. Um, one of the things that I do in my research is really try to find the history, the relevant military history of the space force that's beyond the standard Air Force approved version of military space history, and it turns out that there are a lot of people that the space force should look at in history that are not General Schriever or others that followed after him. Uh, one person is uh, General John Bruce Medaris from the Army, who was at Redstone Arsenal in the 50s. Uh, you know, Navy officers, Admiral, then Captain Caleb Lanning, and Lieutenant Robert Heinlein, who were the first to come up with the idea of an independent space force and write about it in popular uh, U.S. media two weeks before the independence of the United States Air Force in 1947. And I think one of the major uh, Air Force not approved uh, space leaders is oddly enough an Air Force officer, but really from the old Air Force, that is the Strategic Air Command. And that was General Thomas Power. He was the third Strategic Air Command commander from 1957 to 1964 who served after uh, Curtis LeMay. And he was a very important space leader in the Air Force in the 1950s as the deputy commander of SAC, later as the commander of the Air Research and Development Command from 54 to 57, when the Air Force first started to struggle in a major way about what its role in space would be. And he carried that uh, space flame in the Air Force into the operational Strategic Air Command and what he did there is why I would consider him to be the, uh, the Air Force's or the warfighting icon for space. Uh, why did I use that term? It was because uh, a person I worked with, the Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dale Hayden, who, was in, uh, who wrote for the uh, Air and Space Power Journal, asked, where is the warfighting icon for space? And in that article, he said, Hey, we're looking for one. We don't really have one. Is General Schriever really it? And through my own research, I started arguing that actually uh, General Power should be considered the warfighting icon for space. Why? Because he was the first one in military writing 
from a as a military commander about what the opportunities in space were, and they were plentiful. Uh, unfortunately, the Air Force did not follow his lead, but we can get into that later. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, I, I know there are probably a lot of people who are thinking, okay, why, like, what could a Cold Warrior airplane guy have that would relate anything to the modern Space Force or how the Space Force should operate, specifically with space deterrence? Since we're a, a deterrence organization, and I write a lot on space deterrence and warfighting, what is the difference between him, like, like, like for example, what did he propose that you said was not so popular? And what, is that, what does that mean to us today, you think? Well, it's important to look at how different Air Force space leaders saw space. And I argued in my book, um, To Rule the Skies, which is biography of General Power, that General Schriever was really a technocrat or a technical leader in that he was enamored with a particular technology the rocket, and specifically the intercontinental ballistic missile. And from that, uh, you know, viewpoint, he saw space as useful to the Air Force only as much as the ICBM could get important things to space. So he really saw space as satellites and rockets and very limited because at the technology for ICBMs limit the size of satellites and other things. Now, that seems to be the big story for Air Force Space because, you know, when I was, you and I were lieutenants uh, back in Air Force Space Command, we were told that General Schriever was the father of the Air Force Missile and Space Program or Space and Missile Program, I think. And that's true. Yep. But they, you know, they made an, uh, they made it clear that the missile program was the space program and General Schriever really made it so. The difference with power is that power was an operator and power really appreciated the classic Air Force mission. And in the late 40s and the 50s into the 60s, really even into the 70s, the main job of the U.S. Air Force was deterrence, specifically nuclear deterrence. And the classic mission of the Air Force was strategic air warfare. And power who was very, very smart, very bright, although he very possibly didn't graduate high school, uh, he nonetheless uh, got into the Air Force from the uh, Air Cadet Program because he taught himself two years of college in six months in the New York Public Library, uh, saw airplanes go from almost you know, nothing, uh, very small, very useless, to supersonic bombers. Uh, in his, in the span of his career as an airman. And because of that, he saw what the scientists and the engineers could do in a relatively short span of time. So when Power looked at space, he did not see just the weakness of an ICBM or small rockets or smaller satellites. He thought that space would be useful when they were able, space was able to do classic air power missions like the strategic uh, warfare mission and deterrence mission. And he sought out technologies in space that were being looked at uh, that would allow him to do specifically strategic air commands mission from orbit. And that caused him to have a very expansive operational view of space. 
and what it could do with deterrence rather than the smaller vision that Schriever had that only admitted for satellites to where space would be relegated to a support mission. And, you know, to this day, the difference between power and Schriever and the relative weakness of the U.S. Space Force is essentially because the Air Force and the nation bought off on the weaker, smaller version of space as the ballistic missile rather than space as a warfighting domain. Well, you know, so speaking of that, I know I've heard several leaders, including, um, I believe, General Dickinson, who's the current commander of U.S. Space Command and others, um, focus the Unified Command Plan and other major documents on that support role. In fact, if you look at the a lot of the public affairs related uh, uh, items that you see on social media and other places, which is another topic we'll talk about probably in, in another episode, but um, it's, it's all focused on how space supports various satellites and launch and others support the various other terrestrial forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, et cetera, and, and also the way of life. So when you were talking about him being an operator and you're talking about the deterrence mission, what was some of the things that he was looking at doing um, that maybe uh, should have happened and why didn't it happen? Well, from an operating concept standpoint. Sure. Really, you can see the difference between Schriever and Power in the first uh, Air Force document from a commander on space policy, the SAC space policy in the late 1950s, which Power uh, wrote or at least signed. Uh, And he said that the importance of space to the Air Force and really to the nation had three different parts. It had the, uh, uh, the political scientific leadership dimension. And it had the military leadership dimension, the warfighting dimension, and also the commercial, um, you know, dimension where uh, he thought that and said that space could be as important to the 21st century as the airplane was in the 20th. Uh, He had a very expansive view of space, but because he had a very expansive view of the opportunities of space, he looked for the technologies that smart people were offering Uh, that would push the envelope in ways that uh, the airplane pushed the envelope from the Wright Flyer to, you know, the B-58 supersonic bomber uh, and had those radical leaps of technology because operational requirements demanded it. And his preferred space program uh, for the Air Force in the 50s and 60s focused on two different vehicles. One is a... Uh, is relatively well-known, or at least more well-known than the other, the dinosaur uh, space plane, which would later become the sort of the space shuttle and uh, and other things. But that's relatively well-known. You know, man in space, crewed spacecraft. He thought that space was an extension of the Air Force, and the extension of the Air Force that should go into space was the bomber. He was the last of the bomber barons to a certain extent. But... Uh, He really enjoyed uh, making sure that the dinosaur would continue uh, to the point where that was one of the space programs, one of the two that were uh, always written about in the classified headquarters uh, histories of strategic air command, what the dinosaur was doing and how SAC was supporting that particular program. But his real vision 
was based on something that is less well-known called Project Orion. Now, this was not uh, the Orion uh, that we know now, which is sort of the Artemis uh, capsule part of the new lunar program that NASA is trying to do. This was actually a very uh, uh, revolutionary program that was developed entirely by the United States uh, to try to come up with the uh, a space propulsion system that was not chemical rocketry that was developed by the Germans, but something that was wholly American. And the people that came up with this particular idea were the uh, people that were uh, veterans of the Manhattan Project. In the 40s, what did, and the 50s, you know, what did America know how to do better than anything, you know, than anyone else? And that was nuclear and atomic technology. So Orion was an attempt to harness the power of the atom in ex really atomic explosives to develop a uh, in-space propulsion system and a launch vehicle based off of nuclear detonations. And this Orion project was essentially an attempt to produce a rocket that would be propelled by miniature explosives, one after another after another, that they called it Project Putt-Putt when the Air Force first started to develop it <laughs> to uh, get to orbit. Now, the interesting thing about this is back when we thought that it would take an ungodly amount of propellant in giant rockets to get a couple of pounds into orbit. Very smart engineers and scientists decided that Project Orion, even in its earlier, you know, uh, Mark Zero prototype kind of technology, could get thousands of tons to orbit. And that is when you can see that Power's vision for space was heavy equipment doing real missions with the the weight and mass equivalent of a U.S. Navy light cruiser out of World War II, rather than a satellite that could not do much other than beep in support of, you know, uh, regular terrestrial military operations. So uh, Power believed in the power of American ingenuity because he had seen it his entire career. And now when he was commander of Strategic Air Command, he had the best bomb designers and some of the best physicists of that time telling him that we could build a spaceship that could send 100 people to Saturn by 1970 with tons on orbit. And he believed him and wanted the uh, Project Orion to have a large role to play in the Air Force space program in the 60s. So real quick. On the on the SAC related bit for for the deterrence in space idea, um, how was that vision decided? Was there studies that went on? What was the kind of missions that they were thinking of replacing with this this orbital deterrent um, as we know it with the current triad today? That was that was the triad back then. What's a few of those that you can share with us. Well, it's important to note that the triad is sort of an after the fact justification of a number of different programs of, you know, nuclear, uh, you know, weapon systems programs. The Navy needed a program. So they had, you know, Polaris. Uh, the Air Force needed to uh, have their silver plate B-29s um, and then later aircraft. And then the missile had to be in there somewhere. So I'll, we'll make it a we'll make it a triad. Uh, that wasn't exactly how people saw it earlier. And really, uh, 
And naturally, what would a strategic air command commander think of what you could do with thousands of tons in orbit? And it was essentially uh, to do a lot more uh, efficiently what General Power was trying to do with his, you know, um, B-52s, which is, you know, airborne, ever-present alert only in space. So if you had a couple of thousand tons on orbit, what would you do with it? Well, you would send up a spacecraft, an Orion spacecraft, that would have a number of offensive and defensive systems, but whose main payload would be a couple of, you know, nuclear uh, bombs, nuclear missiles that could strike the Soviet Union from space in order to deter a nuclear first strike, especially if you had um, a lot of these spacecraft in different orbits. It would be almost impossible for the Soviet Union to attack them all at once and destroy them all at once in a first strike. This was the simultaneity problem uh, in trying to overcome mm-hmm. a deterrent in, uh, uh, in the Cold War. And of course, because Orion, if it was built, offered a solution to being able to have SAC's deterrent on orbit at all times, creating a strategic aerospace command rather than a strategic air command, uh, SAC's job would be a lot easier and SAC would become essentially the U.S. Space Force the way that Caleb Lanning and Robert Heinlein envisioned it in 1947. So, uh, I actually, I just want to interject here. I thought I remember reading in one of your papers, or maybe it was another paper related to it that may have came out of SAC at the time that you sent me uh, in preparation for this interview, but I thought... One of the reasons why another reason why they wanted to move the deterrent into space was because at the time, under the, the shelling model of deterrence, which held all of the public at risk, all the urban areas at risk, and as a result was was to not strike on the, the other side's nuclear deterrent, um, that, that, the, that the whole reason was was, hey, let's move the whole deterrent force into orbit and even into lunar orbit as a redundant in order to keep the zone of the interior or the homeland safe from strikes because everything that there was that was threatening and for the Soviet Union or whoever the adversary would be would be in space is that is that an accurate yeah, statement Yeah absolutely uh, you know there was there were a lot of different uh, approaches about deterrence in the cold war but one of the biggest cleavages was there was the academic version of what deterrence should be. And then there was the Air Force and SAC version of what deterrence should be. And the military never, never agreed with the standard academic assumption that what we need to do is hold each other hostage. No one in SAC believed in mutually assured uh, destruction. It was assured destruction in that if the Soviet Union did something we didn't like, they could be assured that they would be destroyed. But SAC was here to save as many people in the United States as possible. Uh, No military person would agree that humans should be held hostage, uh, except for Russians, and certainly no Americans should be held hostage by anybody. So um, military people never uh, accepted this thing that we were supposed to hold our you know, uh, cities hostage and our people hostage to the Soviet Union for mutual assured destruction. No, a lot of people wanted, and the uh, Captain uh, Donald Mixon, uh, Air Force Captain Donald Mixon, 
started arguing this in uh, Frederick Gorsboth, who's also a captain working in the Orion Project, said, hey, look, the way that we are supposed to defend our people is by taking our nuclear deterrent away from the cities, away from the American interior, and putting them into space. Because if we fight in space, everyone back home is still safe. You're not, you're not going to have the Soviet Union attacking uh, Chicago or, you know, uh, Lincoln or Omaha or, you know, Tucson or anywhere else uh, legitimately because there's no nuclear targets in any of those cities. If the Strategic Air Command or the or if SAC was up in space, if you were going to get a first strike off to limit mm-hmm. and, you know, neutralize the deterrent or the second strike capability, you had to go to space. And if you were bombing and using your nuclear weapons in space, you weren't using them in the ground or over the cities of the United States. So that is a huge uh, advantage that, uh, uh, that power and, uh, you know, the Orion sort of strategic advocates, Mixon and Gorsh both thought that space provided, and it still does. Um, you know, if you were going to get into a nuclear war today, uh, what would be hit? Well, still a lot of uh, towns in the United States because they have global strike command bases or were next to you know, submarine pens or other things that, uh, you know, command and control centers for our strategic warning, missile warning satellites and all that. Uh, there's no natural reason that, uh, you know, the United States should accept that its, uh, its people are held hostage and should be held hostage for deterrence reasons. Uh, you know, SAC didn't believe it back then. We probably shouldn't believe it now, even though most people probably do. Uh, but this is where another reason of, that space gets, uh, you know, much higher marks than other things. If you were going to strike the nuclear deterrent in space, if they miss, the Russians miss, no big deal. Um, if they miss, you know, off at Air Force Base and hit, you know, Omaha, you're going to have a lot of people die. <laughs> a lot of civilians die. Right. So so let's let's talk about today real quick. So a lot of people, because of all the treaties, the test ban treaties and everything else, uh, and also just policy decisions, obviously, Orion didn't happen. The uh, the orbital command and control didn't happen. The space deterrent space to ground weapons hasn't happened uh, unless you stretch it and say ICBMs or intercontinental ballistic missiles, which I don't think I would buy that. Um, a lot of people hearing you are probably thinking this is nuts. Why in the world? Would you want to put large amounts of, of weapons, whether they're conventional or nuclear, into space? And why would why need people? Why people in space with these big ships? I mean, is this is this something that's just some nutty old Cold War view, um, or is there something that the space force could learn and take away from this uh, because of the fact that we're now in a great power competition? Some people think maybe the beginnings of a second Cold War. Um, how do you think these these lessons might apply to, to today, and how would you argue against people who think it's nuts? Well, the reason that uh, that Orion didn't happen was uh, it never it was not technically infeasible. Uh, the Orion idea was definitely ready to go to prototype, and uh, General Power, as SAC commander, actually signed a lot of uh, papers uh, trying to make this happen to 
you know, do the underground testing that was necessary for building the prototypes and could really push it forward. Uh, Robert McNamara, as Secretary of Defense, uh, just assumed that it was a bad idea, uh, that it was impossible, and that it was technically in Harold Brown, his deputy director of research and engineering, mostly because they thought that they were struggling with, uh, you know, getting a couple hundred pounds to orbit. How in the heck are we going to do hundreds of or thousands of tons? It was really a lack of imagination, quite honestly. And then sort of the rise of nuclear fear that would happen a little bit later where anything nuclear was considered automatically morally suspect, right? Um, it was really a, a lack of vision that stopped it. And when today people say, well, that sounds nuts. Uh, that's a psychological, uh, you know, um, conclusion that doesn't really have a whole lot of technical uh, rigor behind it, because most people say in uh, the interstellar community uh, where, you know, people are looking for ways to uh, do much more powerful deep space um, propulsion and stuff like that, pretty much assume that if we needed to have something right away, Orion would work very well. We actually understand the engineering pretty well. Uh, nuclear pulse design might be a little bit more difficult because our our explosive, you know, our nuclear explosion engineers have either retired or passed away and we're not quite as good as we were, but this is still a very viable technology. Should anyone decide to look at it again? Um, well, Hey, um, just real quick, since we're running low on time, I was wondering, are there any, if, if the general power was here today with the technology that we have, whether it includes nuclear pulse propulsion or not, um, what what kind of problems do you think strategic or operational problems could be solved um, for, for for space deterrence and war fighting, for issues with the Indo-Pacific threat with Russia? I mean, I think in one of your papers you wrote about how within the second or third nuclear age, depending on who you ask, um, that, that the utility of nuclear weapons has increased. It's not gotten away in a lot of the nuclear counterproliferation uh, systems. Uh, or treaties have kind of started to die out. So like the Russians are threatening to pull out of the comprehensive test ban, things of that sort. Is is what, what would power suggest the Space Force do using these lessons learned of these people from that, that you've been talking about and these concepts? Is there something Space Force should use? Is there technology now that might be more palatable? Or I just, just want to get your thoughts on, on that. For sure. Today. I think right now, if you want to have a very serious discussion on how space forces can move quickly, I think a lot of that is going to revolve around uh, SpaceX's Starship, because that's offering movement and maneuver advantages that uh, power could only find through Orion back in the 50s and 60s, uh, for instance, but uh, offers a lot more opportunities today. Now, the paper that I wrote you know, many years ago now on the second nuclear age was really trying to uh, explore the fact that way back in the Cold War, the only nuclear war that might, that was in serious uh, threat of happening was against NATO, essentially the United States and Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. Uh, nowadays, that's not as true. Uh, back then, you know, general nuclear war, you know, in war games, global thermonuclear war was pretty much the only thing that we were you know, it seemed like escalation was pretty clear, but nowadays you might have minor powers that are nonetheless nuclear that might 
have a nuclear war in a regional sense. And if that was the case, all of a sudden you, in order to intervene, interfere, deter, or otherwise get involved, you need to have a superior nuclear capability than the other two minor powers that are fighting amongst each other. If you're going to have any hope in, you know, uh, decreasing tensions and power would say, well, obviously what you need to do is be able to have a nuclear force that was capable of responding to these things without having, you know, a spasmatic sort of approach to just bombing everything with using every nuclear weapon that you have a la a, single integrated operational plan. And well, well, actually, you know what else I would think, Brent? The other thing that comes to my mind is whether it's, it's, it's nuclear or not, I think even conventionally, this could be something that would be very handy in dealing with the threat ring situation, the anti-access area denial concept that people have been talking about, or as the Chinese call counter-intervention. And as a result, since a lot of people are concerned that the smallest air force since World War One may not be able to effectively get in and deal with all the massive amounts of buildup in forces in China and even Russia to, to some some degree that maybe having um, this this spaceborne deterrent force, um, whether it's conventional or nuclear or whatever, could be useful with operational situations uh, in addition to defending and, and gaining space superiority, which a lot of people seem to be changing the definition of to fit support functions rather than actually addressing the threat that Space Force was created to achieve. Does that does that sound feasible in your mind? Do you think that's something maybe your um, warfighting icon, General Power, might agree with? Well, and this is the last question. Well, Power was <laughs> definitely a person that uh, if you could get away with it, the answer was always more American power, more flexibility in that power. And uh, basically just having decision superiority over all enemies because we could do whatever we want and could prevent them from doing anything that they wanted to do. So more uh, options, especially more hard military power options for the president is always better. Uh, there, yes. Can you do uh, earth terrestrial strike from space? Yes. There's no uh problem with doing that from a physics perspective. It's sort of an engineering problem in that we don't have a lot of ability to do that. That doesn't mean we can't build it. Uh, I tend to be a little bit more a fan of nuclear deterrence from space because nuclear deterrence is something that you threaten, but don't generally use and cannot use in an aggressive manner uh, in a way that is sort of uh, globally acceptable, right? Right. Uh, Conventional strike from space, definitely possible, but it also, if you go that route, you might make space warfare more escalatory than maybe it naturally might be. Uh, it would definitely have some utility. Uh, whether or not you would, we should choose to exercise that utility is probably a question for strategists that really haven't thought about it enough yet. Uh, I could go either way on it. I have uh, some concerns, but I also have some uh, I understand what the potential might be uh, for that. Uh, I tend to think that space-to-space -space weapons are not anywhere near as escalatory as uh, uh, space-to-ground weapons, perhaps. And again, if you can uh, take out an adversary's space support capabilities, you can prevent them from doing force projection anywhere else, uh, or at least, you know, very uh, 
far reaching uh, force um, right. uh, force uh, projection. But this is the kind of thinking that space force people and planners and strategists should really be arguing rather than, you know, uh, what kind of support can we offer the joint force next? Uh, space warfare has not really happened. Uh, so we need to start thinking about it and we need to think about it seriously. And I'm afraid that, you know, the Space Force as the joint forces satellite maintainers uh, that Schriever would have really, uh, you know, really pushed uh, is not a force capable of having those discussions. But a Space Force that embraces uh, visionary leaders like General Power, uh, like uh, Robert Heinlein and Caleb Lanning, uh, they're the ones that could really study these important issues and figure out what uh, deterrence should be with a, you know, a warfighting space force. Uh, and I look forward to that discussion. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, thank you again, Dr. Zarnick, for coming and for your viewpoints. There's definitely more we could talk about, uh, but that concludes our time. So thanks again for coming. Hey, thanks again for having me. Good luck. Thank you for listening to NIDS Knowledge, Real Space Strategy. The Real Space Strategy Edition is produced under NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, NIDS. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent on donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I want to thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative NIDS knowledge. <laughs>